Our gospel lesson comes to us from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapters 12 and 13. You may remain seated. Jesus said, I came to bring fire to the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. I have a baptism with which to be baptized, and what stress I am under until it is completed. Do you think that I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you immediately say, it is going to rain, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Thus, when you go with your accuser before a magistrate, on the way, make an effort to settle the case. Or you may be dragged before the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer throw you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. At that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. And then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. He said to the gardener, See here, For three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. The word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Well, before I launch into my sermon, I want to say thank you to all of you, to this wonderful congregation, its members who allowed me to leave Albuquerque for a while and head east to the old Buckeye State and spend some time with family and a lot of time reading and researching, getting ready for my upcoming adult ed classes that will begin just after Labor Day. 
I needed to get away, I needed to recharge, and I needed to have a little fun with family. But I have to tell you, and I've been asked many, many times since I got back a week or so ago, did you go fishing? Did you go fishing? Did you go fishing? Did you go fishing? No, I read and read and read and read and read, but I did go fishing in my daughter's backyard. Because out there was this big, fine kiddie pool, and my granddaughter, Virginia, Catherine, and I would hang out by the pool, and we would fish there. And we would catch all kind of fine critters, plastic whales and giraffes, and so I caught a lot. I did go fishing in a way, and it was great. But again, please accept my thanks. This is a kind and loving and very generous congregation, so I thank you for my time in the Buckeye State. Well, I'm going to share some more with you about Ohio. Many years ago, Debbie and I moved into a new old house. It had been built shortly after the Civil War by an officer, Union officer, who had returned from the war and then became the congressman for that area, that district of Ohio. It was my wife's dream house. It was my nightmare. Um, I just called it the house on the hill. Anyway, we moved in in the winter, and it was very cold. Um, And Debbie got excited, though, as the days lengthened and, and spring started to arrive. She was anxious to plant a garden because out back of the house was a large area that was going to be tilled up by me and planted. We were also excited because in one little corner of this garden area there was a patch of asparagus that had been there for a long time. And we were looking forward to enjoying the asparagus sprouts. Well, everything else in the garden did well that year, but the asparagus, uh, you wouldn't want to eat it. Just looking at it mm, was not that great. So anyway, we were a little upset that we couldn't harvest the asparagus. Well, after the harvest season, I think it was just before Thanksgiving time, I was talking to one of my parishioners, a gruff old farmer from Shelby County, Ohio, and I said, hey, what do I do for my asparagus? He was a man of few words. He just said, I'll stop by. He did, just shortly after Thanksgiving in his pickup truck that was riding a little low thanks to its load. And he delivered, and I wasn't home at the time, nor my wife, nor my daughters. He just kind of snuck up the driveway and left a little gift. What he left was manna, not manna from heaven, but a special kind of manna gathered from around a rather large hen house up in Shelby County. And oh, did my asparagus appreciate the nitrogen in that lovely load of chicken manure. Now, because I've been encouraged to take advantage of the new projector, I have a slide for you to help um, to see that farmer pickup truck and yada yada. Okay, so there it is. An old Chevy pickup with a load of compost, not in the bed, but on the hood. That's the only picture I could find. No, the compost he brought was in the back of the pickup truck. I think what happened there is a country western singer got cross 
ways with his, I don't know, producer. And the producer left a little present on the hood of his prize pickup truck. Anyway, enough of the projector. Oh, no, wait a minute. I have slides of grandbabies. No, I don't. I wouldn't do that to you. Then he told this parable. A man had planted a fig tree in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it, and he found none. And he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? And the gardener replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. And if it bears fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. Now I'm sure all of you understand that Jesus tells this parable not just as a way of helping his audience understand soil pH and the benefits of composted fertilizer. In the other little snippet in the lesson about settling affairs with one's accuser, that wasn't simply a bit of sage advice on how to escape debt and the debtor's prison. If you read these chapters in Luke, especially chapters 11 through 19, you soon discover that the theme of judgment dominates. Divine judgment that is just around the corner. God's wrath that is going to fall on his own people. Or as Jesus says, this generation, this generation, and he's angry, very angry, that though they can tell the weather by looking at the sky, they can't see and understand what's going on around them and the consequences of their actions and the disaster their actions are going to bring. Well, in these chapters in Luke, Jesus certainly sounds like an Old Testament prophet delivering oracles of judgment, warnings about the coming wrath of God. He sounds like John the Baptist who came before him, and Jeremiah, and Elijah, and Elisha, and all the other great names in the Old Testament. So what has him so hot around the collar? and so sure and certain of what it is that's going to befall the people of Israel. Well, certainly divine inspiration was involved, but at the same time, Jesus was simply an astute observer of current events. What was going on around him, what was being said, what the people were talking about. A fine Anglican priest and an excellent New Testament commentator and bishop has written at length about this dominating theme of judgment as it appears in the Gospels, especially Luke chapters 11 through 19. His name is N.T. Wright. You might want to read his book, Jesus and the Kingdom of God. Anyway, he argues convincingly that these chapters are a kind of commentary 
given by Jesus on current events in the little province of Judea where he carried out his ministry. And again and again and again, over and over and over in the commentary, you hear words that announce clearly and pointedly, repeatedly, there is a coming national disaster that will sweep away the nation, the nation of Israel, that nation's cherished city, Jerusalem, and even the house of God, the temple in Jerusalem. This is not good news. And there certainly is an irony here. Because Jesus sounds like an Old Testament prophet, but those old prophets usually withheld their harshest words for their pagan neighbors, not their own people. But Jesus directs all of these oracles against his fellow Jews. He says, in fact, they're no better than the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it would seem that they, that is, those members of Jesus' generation, were having what the prophet Jeremiah had spoken about centuries earlier. They were having dreams. The people were dreaming. And their leaders were dreaming. Their priests were dreaming. Their rabbis were dreaming. From those dreams, they were hatching schemes. Rather than following their God-given vocation, and destiny. Well, what were those dreams? And what were those schemes hatched from them? In answer to those questions, I'm now going to give you a very brief and cursory survey of some of the first century AD current events that everyone was familiar with, much like the stuff you read or may have read in this morning's Sunday paper. This news was everywhere. Everybody was talking about this stuff. So here we go. First up, just before the start of the first century, news reached the street that the Roman collaborator, the hated King Herod the Great, had died. And there wasn't dancing in the street. There were riots in the street because Jews thought it was an opportune time to send Rome a message. Soon after Herod's death, an armed rebellion broke out in the temple precincts, not out there in the countryside in a little village in a far corner of the province. No, right in the capital, right in the city itself, on Mount Zion, there in the temple. Rebellion broke out, but it was ruthlessly put down by the powers that be. Thousands died. Thousands died. And then a little later, a rebel leader by the name of Judas launched his attack against the Romans and the authorities up in Galilee. But again, it was quickly put down. But thousands of rebels were crucified. 
Now let me tell you, crucifixions back in the day were not simply state executions. They were deliberate and meant to be public spectacles for the purpose of terrorizing any would-be subjects of Rome. It was a way of keeping the population in line. Just a few years later, in the year 6 AD, another rebel by the name of Judah initiated an armed tax revolt. Roman taxes were a little too high. Have you ever heard discussions about taxes? Well, Judah was mercilessly hunted down, and he and his followers were crucified. Crucified by the thousands, and thousands of others sold off into slavery. And on and on and on it went. One rebel, one bandit after another, another would-be Messiah calling the people to his side, proclaiming that the day of the Lord was at hand, and the Jewish people would enjoy victory and peace and freedom and liberty, and God would do away with their Roman overlords. This was the political discussion of the day, and this was the religious discussion of the day. And let me remind you, back then, religion and politics were not separate, but were combined. If you want to know the names of all the messiahs that emerged and all the crucifixions that took place, you might want to read the old Jewish historian who lived during the first century, Josephus. He'll tell you all about it. Well, the talk went on, the rebellions went on through the first half of the first century AD, and it was helped along this tide of talk by a few inept and rather cruel Roman administrators. But things all came to a head just 30 years, 30 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. The Jewish parties were on the same page and they were talking about freedom from Rome and they were calling for revolution. And this was their most basic shared belief that all means were justified to attain political and religious freedom. So finally, with enough popular support, the Great Revolt was launched in Jerusalem in 66 AD. And at first, at first, the rebels were successful. They defeated the Romans, at least on one particular battlefield, kind of like the Confederates won at first Manassas. But that was the only victory they enjoyed. That was the only one. Rome responded in force. Orders were dispatched from Rome itself by the emperor. And so the accomplished Roman general Vespasian marched south from Syria with three legions. And he very quickly 
pacified all of Galilee. And while he was doing that up north, his son Titus was coming with his legions from the south from Egypt. And his soldiers swept through the southern part of the province and surrounded the holy city Jerusalem and besieged that city. And then began one of the greatest mistakes and tragedies that ever befell the Jewish people. The rebels were surrounded, thinking they were safe inside the city, but they turned on each other. There was a suicidal civil war among the Jewish parties. One rebel leader hoping to get everyone on board in the revolution destroyed the foodstuffs, food stores in the city of Jerusalem, which brought on starvation rather quickly. And as the siege continued, the citizens of Jerusalem resorted to cannibalism to stay alive. It was a bloodbath. It was a disaster. And finally, in the summer of 70 AD, the forces of Titus breached the walls of Jerusalem, and once inside, his soldiers initiated an orgy of violence and destruction. The temple was destroyed, and the whole city itself. And again, let me tell you this, in that hot summer season, just around this time of the year, that destruction was one of the greatest catastrophes endured by the Jewish people. Dreams of liberty, dreams of freedom, were in the air so thick in the first century that you could just swat them away like flies. Jesus heard those dreams and he heard the schemes hatched from them. And he knew the consequences that would come if those dreams were pursued. N.T. Wright puts it this way, it did not take much political wisdom to extrapolate forwards and to suggest that if Israel continued to provoke the giant, the giant would eventually awake from slumber and smash her to pieces. And that's what happened to that generation. dreams of the Jewish people, the plans of the Jewish people in that long march to war and defeat were not then or now unique, unique to the Jewish people. All of us, even today, cherish freedom and liberty. These things are very much a part of our talk, our politics, our religion, our way of life. But here is the problem. In Jesus' day and in ours, dreams of freedom and liberty sometimes take on darker tones. They become colored by great anger. An unquenchable need, thirst for revenge outright bitter hatred of the other 
the foreigner. Rabid nationalism. Overweening ambition, thinking we're special because we have a special relationship with God. And when these darker tones grow to the point where they trump the basic dream of freedom and liberty and justice for all, history has proven that disaster is usually waiting just around the corner. Were Christians back in the day exempt from all of this? Did they remove themselves from this discussion? Did they stand on the sidelines and just watch? What do you think they did? Knowing the words of Jesus and his prophecies and his recommendations, his dreams, what did they do? Well, you know, there was a large Jewish Christian church located where? Right in the city of Jerusalem. And they were there in AD 66. And they were probably there in AD 70. What happened to them? Did they flee? Did they escape? Here's one of the, the most intriguing mysteries of the first century AD. That church, those Christians, those people just disappeared. So think about what might they have done? Might they have joined the revolution? Being good Jews that they were? Think about it. It may well be that no one is exempt, no one, even people of faith, from these kinds of dreams and the schemes that flow from them. Well, I will leave you to reflect on the toxic mix of wayward dreams that led to the horrendous events of A.D. 70. I encourage you to take another look at Luke chapters 11 through 19. Read those many words of judgment, parables of judgment, in light of the ebb and flow of the events of Jesus' day. And reconsider as you read those chapters his call to repentance, his call to make friends with accusers, his call to pursue peace, his call to forgive the offender, his call to enter by the narrow gate and his call to bear good fruit. Well, now that I've depressed you enough, let's go back to my old asparagus patch. After my friend's visit, my asparagus slept and slumbered through the winter months under a nice, nice, nice warm blanket of composted chicken manure. Shelby County, manna. And it must have loved that stuff because that spring, my asparagus came on like gangbusters. And oh, did we enjoy it. We provided the proper food, 
and we got the expected results. So my dear friends, be mindful of your dreams and the, dream, and the deeds that flow from those dreams. Feed your dreams and your deeds as well. On the rich, rich, rich nitrogen that can only be found by staying in God's holy word, staying in prayer, and staying in the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.